Money FM 89.3, best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. Thanks for joining us on Primetime. You're with Bharati Jagdish and Timothy Go, And lots to follow this week in terms of global headlines. And to help us along, Rich Preston joins us. He's senior world news reporter and presenter at the BBC. Hi, Rich. Thanks for joining us. Hi, very good to be with you guys again. I hope, Rich, you are used to the hot weather by now or the weather has cooled down significantly since we last talked. Oh, do you know what, Timothy? Considerably, last time we spoke, uh, you know, it's quarter past 11 here in London, and I think it was already tipping into 30 degrees, uh, whereas today it's a nice, cool 19, which for me, growing up in Scotland, is much more (laughs) comfortable. 19, that's good. That's more like a UK summer. Yeah, precisely, yeah, and it's grey and cloudy as well, so we're really Mm. hitting the summer mark. So what are your Met experts saying, though? Is, Is this it? Well, they're saying that the, the warm weather will come back, just not as extreme as it did before. You know, we've not had our usual kind of peak summer yet. We're expecting that in kind of August time. So we will get the normal kind of highs of you know, 25, 30, whatever, but we're not expecting it anywhere near the 40 degrees that we had before mm. when those two kind of pressure waves mm. were coming up from Europe and meeting in the middle. Well, that sounds like good news, but I understand that in the race to the prime ministership, things are not exactly cooling down, are they? We are seeing... No, absolutely. Yeah, we're seeing quite a bit of action coming out of there. Of course, Rishi Sunak asking if the population is ready for Rishi, and we all love the alliteration, by the way. But he, <laughs> more recently, has promised to get tough on China if he becomes the UK's next prime minister, labelling the Asian superpower the biggest long-term threat to Britain. Of course, his pledge comes after his rival in the final two of the race to lead the ruling Conservative Party, Liz Truss, accused him of being weak on China and Russia. What are the British people making of all of this? Do you know what? It's a really interesting one. And I don't think anyone was expecting China to actually come into it at all. And the reason I say that is because there have been several TV debates and there's another one tonight. It's the last one Mm. between the the two uh, candidates. And so far, discussions have been around tax, the economy, and there's been a little bit of Russia-Ukraine there. But comments about China kind of came out of left field. And as you suggested, it's kind of backfired for Rishi Sunak because he said, I'm going to be tough on China. Uh, I want Chinese companies not to invest in British universities or to be transparent if they do. Uh, China has stolen British technology. It's infiltrated British firms and industries and academic institutions. But then, as you said, Liz Truss, his contender, the current foreign minister, turned around and said, well, you were chancellor for many years and you cozied up to China. You were happy to take their money. And I don't think he was expecting uh, Liz Trust to come back with that. So I think that will be a big sticking point in the debate tonight because, as you said, Rishi Sunak saying he wants to get tough on China, Liz Trust saying, you hypocrite, you can't do that. Now, on the whole scheme of things, though, do you think it is a wise thing to provoke well, China's superpower as it is in this kind of way? I think it feels like a safe provocation, to be honest with you. I think it feels like something that Rishi Sunak can say quite comfortably, knowing that the people who will be voting between him and Liz will probably get on board with that idea. Yeah, we'll stand up to China, we'll stand up to this big superpower, stand up to this big oppression, but actually without any immediate effect 
on the UK coming from Beijing. I mean, of course, China does invest in UK industries and there there are trade ties, but realistically, China's got much bigger fish to fry. Playing the base for what it is. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. I'm sure there are other issues that are dominating the psyche of the population at this point. The cost of living, of course, being among the top issues, I'm sure. How would you assess how these two candidates are dealing with this one? This is a really interesting one because Rishi Sunak was the Chancellor during COVID in Britain and kept people's jobs on the whole, kept people's businesses alive. He was in charge of the furlough scheme, which kept people's incomes afloat during COVID. And that's really his big fanfare. He says, look, I got it through this global pandemic and I kept people in employment. But Liz Truss says, well, the reason you did that is because you've raised taxes and you've raised taxes to the highest level in several decades. And this now that we're out of COVID pretty much, this is hitting people where it hurts. Gas prices are at an all-time high. Uh, fuel prices, you know, uh, electricity, you know, groceries, all these kinds of things are at an all-time high. So that's the kind of main point of division. With Rishi Zunak saying, listen, I'm a safe pair of hands, and Liz trusting, well, you're only a safe pair of hands because the general public are paying for it. And one of her main points is that she is going to cut taxes from day one. And the thing is, the cost of living crisis really is hitting people in their back pockets here. And not just the people it normally does. You know, you normally hear of lower socioeconomic groups being hit first. But the middle classes, the slightly upper classes, they're also groups which are making savings and cutting back on unnecessary expenditures. So it is hitting everyone. And that's uh, certainly endearing people towards Liz Truss. Oh, right. right. Let's move on and talk about the French president's trip to Africa this week. Where is he going and what's the reason we are paying attention to this? Well, he's off to Cameroon and Benin. Two reasons for this. Uh, So Cameroon is about security ties and fighting Islamist extremists. Now, it comes just a couple of months after French troops pulled out of another former French colony, Mali. Their presence there had just become slightly too uncomfortable. While he's in Cameroon, he's going to be meeting President Paul Bia and recommitting French forces. Even though US troops have pulled out of the country, uh, Macron says he wants to keep ties with Cameroon. He says there's a security agreement in place, there's historical links with the country, and we want to counter the threat of particular Boko Haram. Now, the peak of their... uh, terror, if you like, was in 2015, but they have seen a resurgence from December 2020. They've seen kind of an increase in attack. And Cameroon not only wants but needs French support if it's going to continue to counter the threat from the Islamist group. At the same time, there is this kind of historical friction over colonial ties. And that's ultimately what saw the end of the arrangement in Mali, where French soldiers walking the streets just ultimately became a bit too much. When he goes to Benin, it's Diplomacy on another front. We're talking looted artworks. Now, like many African countries, thousands of treasures were taken from Benin by colonial forces uh, back in the day. They've mostly ended up in French and British universities, um, but elsewhere in Europe as well, obviously. Now, a couple of months ago, two British universities handed back some treasures uh, and a few other institutions have followed suit. And that's because back in 2018, President Macron made a pledge. He said he wanted to see African artworks on display in Africa. And so he's going to be recommitting to that pledge and hoping that more French universities, museums, etc., get on board with sending things ultimately back to where they came from. Now, one thing I will flag is that an important backdrop to this is at the same time this key European leader is off making friends in Africa 
guess who else is on the continent? Mm. Russia's foreign minister. <laughs> Sergei, Sergei Lavrov. Lavrov, exactly. Yeah. Precisely, yeah. Now, this is all about making friends in the region. Obviously, on the international stage, Russia doesn't have many friends at the moment, but there are some countries which didn't speak openly and outwardly about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Egypt, Ethiopia, Uganda, the DRC, and Sergei Lavrov is on a tour of those countries. On the surface, to talk about the food crisis and the cost of grain, which really has hit uh, countries across Africa, but it's also about making friends on the continent. How much political capital will he actually garner with these African nations? Well, Russia does pretty well with African countries, um, in part because sometimes, as we know, transparency when it comes to elections, voting, diplomatic processes, you know, free presses can be mirrored in some of these countries that Mr. Lavrov is visiting, as we've seen in Moscow as well. And you know, if your food prices are sky high and you're struggling to feed your people and the Russian foreign minister comes over and says, listen, we want to help, regardless of what you think about what Russia is doing in Ukraine, you're probably going to take that help. Mm. But in the larger scheme of things, of course, the international community watching this, they're not likely to change their stance on Russia in spite no, of all of this not. friend making on the continent. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Russia, you know, can visit African countries, visit the Arab world, and it will pick up a few friends here and there. And there are some people that will always stick by Russia's side. Ultimately, the general international consensus from most European, most African, most Asian countries is in opposition to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. All right, Rich, let's have a look at military drills happening uh, around our part of the world. Who's involved? The Americans are involved. Who else? Yeah, this is the RIMPAC exercises. That stands for Rim of the Pacific, uh, led by the U.S. 26 other countries involved, including Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, India, the U.K., Indonesia, about 25,000 personnel Mm. now this is the world's largest maritime naval exercise and ostensibly it's about drills, rehearsals, but this is really about muscle flexing on several different fronts. There's different subtexts depending on who you look at. Now, for many Asian countries, there's the threat of China. And this, you know, there's a line in the press release the US Navy puts out about practicing sea control and maritime security. And of course, for Indonesia, the Philippines, Korea, Japan, you guys, you know, that really is about the threat of Chinese incursions into the likes of the South China Sea. Then you look at missile drills and anti-missile drills. Well, that's a message to North Korea. And this week, North Korea celebrates Victory Day when traditionally it sends up a couple of missiles, does a few weapons tests. So for the likes of South Korea and Japan, that's a strong message to send to uh, South Korea's northern neighbor. Then there are things about, you know, maritime security, keeping the Pacific secure, which is of interest in Mexico, Colombia, people smuggling, drug smuggling. And then, of course, the big message, the one we were just discussing, is Russia. You know, this is a huge exercise in the Pacific. Russia will be watching closely. And regardless of the specifics of the different drills and the operations, this is America saying, look, We've got more friends than you do. You know, Russia has been accused of using the Black Sea to plant sea mines, blockade ports, launch missiles into Ukraine. And with its slightly limited navy, suddenly the U.S. Navy and the 26 partners gathering together in the Pacific, that sends a strong message to Moscow and one that Vladimir Putin cannot ignore. Again, ultimately, what will all of this messaging really achieve, Rich, in your view, as you watch all of this happen? Well, interesting. We can expect Russia to comment on the the drills. We can expect some kind of 
statement from the Kremlin about, you know, America showing off, something like that. But America does have to tread carefully, and especially when it comes to China. So Taiwan has not been invited to take part in these drills. And that's because if America did invite Taiwan, Beijing would see it as a clear provocation. And Mm. honestly, would have the right to say this is a clear provocation. You're, You're trying to rattle our cage. So the fact that Taiwan's not been invited to take part is America kind of treading carefully around that. But nonetheless, these drills will go on and we can expect China to be unhappy that they're happening in its backyard as well. And we'll see if Beijing puts out some kind of statement towards the end of the week. Very interesting, Rich. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Meanwhile, we'll have our eyes on the uh, prime ministership race in the UK tonight. Uh, Rich Preston, BBC senior world news reporter and presenter joining us here on Primetime. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.